0: Turn to Luke chapter 24. We are actually finishing up our series in Luke this morning. This is uh, our 59th sermon in Luke. I wondered if I could stretch it to 60. And I probably could. But we're going to end on 59, number 59. Uh, Luke chapter 24 in your Bibles, verses 50 through 53. Luke 24, verses fifty. Are you there? Amen. Give me an amen. amen. Got it? All right, here we go. Luke 24, 50 through 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. I want to preach on these three verses under the title, A Current Christ, Mm -hmm. a Christ who is not past tense but a Christ who is currently serving you. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God for help as we get into His Word this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel of Luke, that we have been able to be in this. Uh, It has been such a blessing for us. We ask God that You would bless us one more time this morning out of the Gospel of Luke, and that we would have our eyes drawn toward Jesus Christ, that we might see Him as our current Savior, our current Christ who is continually serving us from the throne in heaven, that we might worship him and find our joy in praising, blessing, worshiping him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been through another uh, presidential political cycle, uh, another election, uh, our minds during this time, turn to the office of president. I'm reminded myself of the enchantment that is found in the office of president. Uh, The president's life in America always captures the fascination of the American people, because it is an intriguing arena in which he finds himself. He is, uh, holds, holds the highest office uh, our country can afford. And so we are always intrigued then with the man and, and even his previous life, his personal life. What's intriguing is the fact that he uh, is indeed a regular individual who has had regular jobs. And it's sometimes interesting to look at Uh, What his life once was, the arena he once found himself in compared to the arena he now finds himself in. So, for example, Barack Obama once served as a community organizer. George Bush once founded an uh, uh, oil drilling company. Ronald Reagan was an actor. Jimmy Carter was a farmer. And Theodore Roosevelt previously was in the arena of being a rancher prior to president. Through a political move then, through a political event, uh, a man goes from that arena, this arena, to uh, the, the highest arena that our country can offer. Now, there is a political event that makes the presidential move look like child play. And that is the event that we see right here. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, the ascension of Jesus was the supreme political event of world history. He departed from the arena of humiliation and suffering and entered his glory. Yet in one moment, he in one moment leapfrogged From the status of despised Galilean teacher to cosmic king of the universe, jumping over the heads of Pilate, Herod, Caesar, Augustus, the ascension catapulted Jesus to the right hand of God, where he was enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. He is a current Christ. In his ascension, everybody say ascension. That is what we're talking about today. Jesus died, was buried. The Apostles' Creed said, which we read this morning, and he what? He ascended into heaven. In our text here, Jesus was uh, risen from the dead. As you might remember, he appeared to two men on the Emmaus road, and then he appeared to Peter, and then to the women. And then to all the disciples, 1 Corinthians tells us he then appeared to 500 people at one time. There's a 40-day period here. It's as if Luke were uh, to, after the appearance to the disciples, Luke is just pressing the fast-forward button. And he's moving quickly through 40 days of training with the disciples. And he brings us right here to the ascension, this moment when Jesus literally lifts up off the ground, raises his hands out, and he blesses. His disciples. You may have seen in Western art a painting of uh, Jesus, supposedly Jesus, up in the air, up in the clouds with his hands uh, uh, extended into the air uh, in this fashion as a way to depict the blessing, the final benediction on his people, on his followers, his disciples as he is being lifted up into the clouds in his ascension. What, now what these paintings don't show us is the meaning and the magnitude and the doctrine behind this picture. They also don't show us Jesus' ethnicity because we know that he wasn't this white dude with blonde flowing hair uh, up in the clouds. But that's another subject for another day. In this moment here, Jesus gives a blessing in verse 50. It says He blessed them. The word there is eulogy. you meaning good. Logi or logos meaning what? Word. Good word. He leaves them with a good word or another word for this is A benediction. He here entrusts his disciples to the care of God, to the watchfulness of God. He's leaving them in good hands. Verse 51 While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, if Luke has hit the fast forward button, I want to hit the pause button right here. All right, uh, sort of like a screeching to the stop, uh, to a stop, and, and uh, I'm, I'm your host, and I pop up into your little video screen, and I say, now hold up, he's leaving, let's just pause for a moment, let's just pause in this moment, he's leaving, like at what point does the disciple say, okay, hold up, hold up, <laughs> wait a second, what's going on, <laughs> you're leaving us now? Died, buried, resurrected, from, and, and now I'm... See ya. Is this, is this similar to a mother who drops her kid off at school and says, all right, baby, have a, have a good day. I'm leaving you in good hands. And then she drives, drives off into the sunset and uh, the child never sees her again? Is this similar, similar to a, a, a platoon captain who has trained his army for warfare and he leads them to the brink of battle? To the brink of their mission, and then he says, All right, guys, I'm going home. See ya. Is this similar maybe to a business owner who takes out a $10 million loan uh, just before starting a restaurant? He dips out on his employees and says, All right, guys, it's on you now. Think about it. Jesus just commissioned his disciples. He just uh, literally is like, We're taking this thing global. You going to the uttermost ends of the, of, of the world. Jesus knows that his disciples are going to face the most difficult days of their life. Suffering and pain in this world. Rejection by the world. Every single one of these men, all probably at least the majority of them, would die, would literally lose their life for, for their faith. Question. Is Jesus dipping out on His disciples? Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus leave? And it's strange because I see their response, and their response is they worship Him. It says they have joy. Why are the disciples worshiping and joyful at the departure of Jesus Christ? Sometimes we act ourselves as if it's true. Jesus just left. We act as if we are alone in this world. Sometimes we think of Jesus as a distant memory. He lived 2,000 years ago. His work is past tense, and now the rest of it is up to us. Someone once told me the gospel gets you saved, but after you get saved, the rest of it is up to you. Are Christians alone in this world? Is the work of Jesus past tense? And now we're just left to kind of grind it out in our mission in this world. Are we alone? Now you can understand too our problem with worship. Because if we think that Jesus is past tense, it's hard to give Him praise in the present tense. You know, we're out here all week long grinding trials and tribulations. We've got our our problems. And then you come to church on Sunday morning and the pastor says, hey, let's give Jesus all the glory. And your response is, okay, where's he been all week? Because I feel alone in this world. Did Jesus leave us 2,000 years ago never to be seen again? Look, my goal this morning is to show you the beauty, the wonder, the significance, the necessity, the importance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, so that you might know that He is not a past tense Savior, but He is a current Savior. I want to do this so that we might, here's our response, so that we might have joy in worshiping the Christ who currently cares for you. He is not an antiquated Christ, as if he's a distant memory. He is not an earthly Jesus in this moment, as if he's a thousand miles away somewhere else. He is not an old-fashioned Christ, who has merely left us with rules, but church, he is a current Christ. I gave you 10 reasons for the resurrection some weeks ago when we looked at the resurrection passage. Today I want to double that. I want to give you 20 reasons for the ascension. Or 20 ways that Christ is your current Savior in His ascension. 20 ways that Jesus cares for you. Number one, in His ascension, our Savior is glorified. Our Savior is glorified. The President of the United States is glorified when he walks into that oval office and sits down at that historic desk. That is him in his glory. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says that in the ascension of Jesus, God exalted him. In Jesus' ascension, uh, then, we don't see here a departure, but rather we see a destination. And Jesus draws, then, what he deserves, and that is his glory. He takes on the royal robe. Why does that serve you? Well, here we are in the foreign country. We need him in the home country, sitting on the throne in his glory to have hope here. Secondly, our Savior is vindicated. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 22, verse 69, he said, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus himself prophesied that he would sit in heaven. He's vindicated now. It's like, that's what's up. This is like a massive, take that to the powers of the world. You, you, you thought that you were going to stop Him, but He is now the Savior sitting on the seat of supremacy in heaven. You thought you were going to kill Him, but now He's the King. You thought you were going to end His work on earth, but He is now just beginning His work from heaven. Number three, our Savior is admitted into heaven. Think about this. He's admitted into heaven. Look at verse 51. He departs, and it says he's carried up into where? Heaven. Luke presents heaven here not as just an idea or a mystical ethereal state, but Luke presents heaven as an actual place in space and time, meaning Jesus still has a body. Jesus didn't sort of revert back to the pre-incarnate state Uh, but rather Jesus, when he took on his full humanity, kept his full humanity, they saw him in his flesh rise up, and that flesh departed with Jesus. Meaning Jesus is in his body in a place, and that place is called heaven. Where is it? I don't know. Nobody knows. We'll never know until we get there. But Jesus is there. Number four, our Savior is preparing us a place. What did he say in John 14? He says, look, I'm taking off. I'm going. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. In ancient Jewish culture, a a man will fall in love with a woman or be given a woman, however they did it back then, I don't know. uh, And he would become betrothed. And in that culture, he would then say to his betrothed, he would say, I'm going back to my father's house to build a place for you. They would literally build a, a house Attached to the house of his father. And when that house is prepared, guess what happens? The trumpets blow. The the man comes back into the town. And the wedding takes place. And then he takes his bride to live in the place that he has built for her. Jesus says, look, you are my bride. We are betrothed. And I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Number five. Our Savior plans to come again. Our Savior plans to come again. In Revelation 21, Jesus goes up. Let me back up. Jesus goes up in Luke 24. Revelation 21, it says, And heaven comes down. I saw saw heaven, the new Jerusalem, and it came down. Meaning, that place becomes this place. Or better yet, this place is transformed. By that place, Jesus is coming again. Number six, our Savior foreshadows our own place in heaven. Him in heaven foreshadows the fact that we will be there. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it says that we will join Him in the clouds. He was raised into the clouds, and it says we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Let's just turn this around for a quick second. Uh, what if Jesus was not admitted into heaven? Have you ever thought about that? Like you might, be a, uh, you might feel a little certain way that he left this earth and went to heaven, but let's just say, what if he was not admitted into heaven? That would mean we will never be admitted into heaven. I mean, the very fact that Jesus is admitted into heaven foreshadows the fact that we one day will join him there. Number seven, our Savior pours down the Holy Spirit. In the previous verse, in verse 49, Jesus says, uh, uh, wait here in Jerusalem, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's sending one who's going to come and he's going to help. The power from on high. the Holy Spirit comes, the third person of the Trinity, God of very God, comes to live with us, not just around us, not just uh, among us, but in us. And the Holy Spirit comforts us and leads us and directs us. Number eight, our Savior reigns with all authority. Our Savior reigns with all authority authority. Jesus said he's going to sit at the right hand of God. And then Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 verse 21 did that that happened. Jesus is or uh, verse 1, I'm sorry. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Meaning Jesus did not only die for you, but he is seated in the most prominent position in heaven and he reigns for you. But check this out. Number nine, our Savior shares authority with us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, God raised him up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Meaning we are seated with him on that throne. We then are vice regents of the kingdom of God. Meaning, we have, because of his ascension, a voice in the throne room of God. We share in his authority with him as believers. In the book of Revelation, there are those who are persecuted for their faith, there are those who are, are, are put, putting up with violence and destruction because of their faith. And, and Jesus says, just hold on, hold on a little bit longer. After this bloodshed, after you get through it, he says, the one who conquers, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him authority to sit on my throne. We rule and reign with Jesus Christ. In what way do we share in his authority? Number 10, our Savior intercedes for us. If I were to go to the White House and I were to tell you, hey, I'm going to intercede for you, what does that mean? It means that you've got a voice in the White House. You've got somebody speaking on your behalf. Now, what does that mean for us that Jesus intercedes? Well, Romans eight thirty four says, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us, which means simply this. Nobody can bring a word against you. Nobody can condemn you. And that is because Jesus ascended into heaven. Number, le- number 11, our Savior advocates for us. a little different than intercession, right? What does it mean to advocate? Well, John, 1 John 2.1 says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. If you were to commit a crime... You need an advocate. You need a lawyer. You need an attorney. And the better attorney you have, the better your chance is going to be before the judge. Well, check this out. I'm a terrible attorney for you when it, when it comes to representing you before God. Your parents, your friends, your children are all terrible uh, advocates for you when it comes to representing be, uh, you before God. They can't speak a better word. Because they too are people in their sins. Look, we have an advocate before God who is not merely an attorney, but he is our Savior. He's the one who says, I shed my blood that they might be made whole. And his blood, church, speaks a better word. He advocates for us. We doing all right? Look, we haven't even got to Hebrews yet. Let's go there. Number 12, we're in Hebrews now. Number 12, our Savior is the boss. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says, God put everything in subjection under His feet. Not some things in subjection, but everything is in subjection under His feet. Feet, meaning there is nothing that will happen tomorrow or Monday morning in your life or the rest of this week or the rest of your life that is outside of His control. And you say, well, what about natural disasters? What about destruction? What about disease? What about death? Now, everything is in subjection to Him. He is Lord of all. And all things then work together for The good of them who are in Christ Jesus. He is the boss. Number 13. The very next verse, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, gives us the 13th way Jesus cares for us in the ascension. And that is this. Our Savior is crowned with glory and honor. That one speaks for itself. Number 14. Our Savior helps us. He helps us. Again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, aka us, the, the, the true Israel, Romans 9, the people of God, the church. Now, Buddha gave a philosophy, but Buddha ain't around helping anybody live out that philosophy. Muhammad gave rules in a way of life. But Muhammad is not helping his followers live that out. But it says that Jesus currently, not past tense, but currently helps us. That's in the present. He currently helps us. He didn't just leave us with a way of life. He didn't just leave us with a philosophy. He didn't just leave us with a list of rules. But He has given us Himself. We have Jesus as Christians, and He is our helper. Number 10, how does He help us? Well, Hebrews goes on and tells us, our Savior is a faithful high priest. In the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Jesus is, this is how He helps us, He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, we got to go all the way back to the Old Testament for this one. We've got to understand something about the way of life for the Jews. They had a high priest. And year after year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice, a lamb slain, for the, to, to atone for the sins of the people. That was called propitiation, wrath-bearing. God would take out uh, uh, His wrath on a lamb so that the people might be freed from the guilt of their sin. Well, it says that Jesus is our high priest by making propitiation for the sins of the people. Meaning that Jesus currently is the wrath bearer. I don't mean that Jesus is continually taking more wrath from God because He took all of that on the cross. But for all of eternity, He stands and represents you as the propitiation. As the wrath bearer. That's how He helps us. Number 16, our Savior is a high priest. Listen, forever. He's not just a high priest, but He's a high priest forever. Hebrews 7 goes on about His high priest uh, uh, priesthood. His current ministry, it says, lasts not for a duration of time, but His current ministry lasts forever. Listen, if Jesus never ascended that He would not be the high priest that lasts forever. Because this earth will not last forever. Don't you see the problem there? If Jesus ceased to exist, then we would no longer have a high priest who is our propitiation. But rather, in His ascension, we know that Jesus lasts forever. Hebrews goes on about this ministry in in heaven. In chapter 9, verse 15, it says that our Savior is the mediator of a new covenant. What was it that Jeremiah prophesied? That God would give us a new heart. That He would take the old heart of stone and write on it His very law. Jesus serves us as He mediates a new covenant. That is to settle the arrangement. To resolve the eternal conflict. To reconcile God and man. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 shows us yet another dimension of his role in heaven. It says, our priest sat down. That's number 12. Or number 18 rather. Jesus sat down. Again, back in the Old Testament, the high priest, would they ever sit down? No. Their work was what? Continual. They were constantly offering new sacrifices because the sacrifices of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Uh, Jesus offered a sacrifice once and for all and He sat down. Meaning, it's done. It's taken care of. Listen, church, there is no sacrifice that is needed for your sin beyond the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Meaning, you do not have to do penance. As a matter of fact, it would be a mockery of God for you to try to punish yourself for the sins that you have committed. There is no such thing as indulgences for the Christian uh, because Jesus has paid it all. And so we don't come uh, to God in our sin, saying, "God, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to beat myself up over." Stop beating yourself up over your sin and look to the Savior who paid it all on Calvary. Amen. He sat down. Amen. No more sacrifice for sin. Number nineteen. I'm almost done. Number nineteen. Our Savior gives us full assurance. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 21 brings all of this home to application. And it says, since we have such a faithful high priest, let us draw near with full assurance of faith. Church, since we know that he is the Savior, representing us before God, we are able to run to God with full assurance that we are accepted by God. In the same way that my children run to me in full assurance of my love, that's the heart of God for us. That's why we call him Abba, Father. We don't hide from God as Adam and Eve once did in their sin, but rather we run to God and we cling to Him and we love Him and we know that He loves us because we have full assurance. In Jesus Christ. I've got one more for you. Number 20. Our Savior saves to the uttermost. Because of His ascension, He saves to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Since He always lives to make intercession for His people because of His permanent priesthood, because of His ongoing, present-day, current ministry in your life, because He always lives to make intercession for His people, it says He is able to save to the uttermost. I don't think you understand how marvelous it is that we see the word uttermost there. Never is any survivor of a tragedy saved to the uttermost. I think of a car accident. You might save somebody out of it, but they lost a lot in the car accident. Maybe they lost some of their health or they lost the car. But Jesus saves to the uttermost. I think of the rescuers on that fateful day on uh, September 11, 2001. Those firefighters were able to save a lot of people from that fire. A lot of great rescuing happened that day, but they were not able to save to the uttermost. You might hear the doctor say something like this. We were able to save the left eye, but we lost the right eye. We were able to save his life, but we lost both of his legs. We were able to save 15 people from the building, but we lost three. Church, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. And here lies the reason that we struggle in our worship is because we act like Jesus saves us for the most part. Dane Ortland puts it this way. He says uttermost is a word denoting comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness. He says we tend to operate as if Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save for the most part. Those who draw near to God. You see, people believe that Jesus can save some parts of them. But some parts are hopeless. Saints, I'm here to say this to you. Jesus is not in heaven rubbing his forehead, looking at you, just wondering how he's going to save you. He's not trying to figure, out, figure it out. He is not sitting there just frustrated with you because you're making it so hard for Him to be a Savior. But well, no, He, he is, he is uh, uh, going to completely save you. Jesus is not repelled By your stench of sin. For all who come to God in Christ, what they find is a Savior who saves to the uttermost. Meaning, there is no amount of sin that would drive Him away from you. There is no amount of sin in you that would tempt Him to throw in the towel. There is no amount of sin in you that that His death denies. There is no amount of sin that he says, I can't pay that debt. There is no kind of sinner that is too bad for Jesus to save. And so the question we're left with at the end of the Gospel of Luke is this. What will you do with Jesus? Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of your sin? Clinging to the sinful passions and pleasures of this world. Or on you, are you on the side of the Savior who deals with your sin problem? Church, He is your only Savior. He is your only hope in life and in death. Come to Christ this morning and find him, in Him the Savior who saves. In His ascension, Jesus is glorified, vindicated, admitted into heaven, preparing us a place. He plans to come again. He foreshadows our own place in heaven. He pours down the Holy Spirit. He reigns with all authority. He shares that authority with us. He intercedes for us. He advocates for us. He is the boss. He's crowned with glory and honor. He helps us. He is our faithful high priest and He is a high priest that lasts forever. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He sat down. And he gives full assurance and he saves to the uttermost. Look, now we know why the disciples responded the way they did. Now we know why they responded the way they did. How did they respond? Verse 52, it says they worshiped him. They wor- that, is, that is utter love, submission, reverence. It says that they they returned to Jerusalem. That's obedience, because Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. Look, what would it look like if we actually uh, lived as if we believed that Jesus is our current Christ serving us in heaven? How would that inspire obedience in us? How might you change your own lifestyle living before God? It says they returned to to Jerusalem with great joy. You might remember the very beginning of Luke. There was joy at his birth. There was actually joy prophesied at his birth. And now, after his ascension, the disciples are filled with great joy. Verse 53 shows us their following action. It says they were continually in the temple blessing God. Again, kind of capping the book here, the book opens with a priest named Zechariah praising God in the temple for the word that there is a Messiah that is to come. And the book ends with his disciples praising God in the temple because the Messiah has come. You know, in some ways, I think the real shock here in our final story is not the ascension. Like after all that they've seen, the lame healed, the dead raised, Jesus himself d- died, buried, resurrected from the dead, spent 40 days with them. I don't think they're surprised at this point by the ascension. There's no surprise here. There's no shock. He lifts up, he disappears. I think the real shock here is this. It's what he leaves behind in his disciples. Weak. Individuals, so weak that they denied him at his, his most crucial moment. They fled, they hid, but they're now left a worshiping community filled with joy. They didn't disband. They didn't just change the channel. They didn't move on to the next Savior, but they worshiped. Jesus Christ, and the rest of their lives would be lived as living sacrifices of worship to God. When I come home every day, my kids are not the only ones that greet me at the door. My wife is not the only one that greets me at the door. We have a dog, and his name is Teddy. He is the first to greet me at the door. When I come home every day, our dog Teddy shakes his tail so hard, his entire backside moves from the left to the right, back and forth. He licks my hand. You know that word worship right there? Look at the word worship in 52. The scholars say that worship means to kiss, but not in the way uh, uh, equals do, not in the way a husband and a wife would do, or, or friends in some cultures. But worship means to kiss in the way that a dog licks the hand of his master. What causes you to worship Christ? What causes you to have this kind of awe and love to lick the hand of your master? Well, he saves to the uttermost. He gives us grace. And it's not grace, but. It's not grace, well, and. But it's grace, period. He gives us not some grace that we need. But He gives us all the grace that we need. What causes us then, church, to have the same response that the disciples had? Well, what we say is this. My salvation is not on earth. My salvation is not in me. My salvation is not how well I do before God. My salvation is not found in my obedience. My salvation is not even found in living out the great commission. But my salvation is in heaven. My salvation is seated on the throne. My salvation is seated on the throne forever and ever and ever. Look. Uh, with my dog Teddy, when he comes home and he's licking my hand, he has the greatest joy in his life in that moment. It's actually not the things I give Teddy that give him joy. It's not the food I give him. He eats that, but that doesn't really get his butt wagging back and forth. It's not the ball that I bring home or the dog toy, but it is my very Presence. It is the dog licking my hand that he finds most joy in. What a picture for us. Where do you find your joy? Church, let us find our greatest joy in licking the hand of our Master. In coming before Him in utter humility and submission and awe and joyfully praise Him, blessing Him, worshiping Him forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus is a current Savior. Alive, ruling, reigning now. God, we pray that we would be a people who find our joy in worshiping Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.